0: There we go. Sam's running like eight different things right now because we have people out of town, so it's all coming together. Good to see you all. Um, we are uh, f- finishing up a series today, so if you're like entering in today, you're coming at the tail end of something that we've been working on for the last five or so weeks. Um, because of that, I'm gonna give you a quick little recap before we jump into what's next, but I'm really excited about um, today and the kind of the final conclusion of the way that this stuff uh, comes together because I think it's partly uh, not just an end cap, but a, uh, the combustibility of the wildfire that we've been talking about over the last few weeks um, has an engine that drives it. It has a, a part of it that makes it, um, re, uh, I guess, transferable um, that I think is unique uh, to, uh, to what we see in the, in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about that today. Before we get there, just real quick, this, um, this little recap that I want us to do is that we talked about fire by talking about the elements of what makes a fire exist. We have heat, heat, Right? which is uh, we described as this, this love for God that transfers into a love for other people. So there's a, a heat, a hotness in us that, that drives this evangelism. And instead of obligation, which often is, you know, you got to do it. This is your duty to do it as a Christian. We wanted to say that love is the, is the first place that we start when it comes to evangelism. And as our love for God heats up, it will naturally flow into a love for others. And then we identified that our love for others then calls us back into loving God even more, because we start to see him work in people's lives. We start to have questions by people that we're ministering to, and it causes us to say, I don't, I don't remember the answer to that question. Let me go pick up my Bible and kind of reread that section, and you have this circular way in which those two things operate. But then we have this fuel part of it, right? We have first heat, first, second fuel, and lastly oxygen. The fuel is that when our, when our love gets hot enough, we give our lives over gladly in obedience when God says, I need you to do something. When God says, I need you to be bold, when God says, hey, jump in and be about this life of serving people, of sacrificing, of rearranging maybe your life in a way that puts you on mission with God for the sake of others. And then lastly, the oxygen that we talked about a couple of weeks ago before Pastor Kenneth Rush came in this last week. He did a great job, by the way, in um, and, and, and talking to us and kind of spurring us on in what we're doing. But as we talked about oxygen, we wanted to identify that as the winds of the Holy Spirit. We have this ability to see the Holy Spirit fan into flame the things that we have. These basic elements of heat and fuel start to burn hot. We talked about that wind bellow and how you can cause a fire. By the way, somebody did contact me later and say I had a physical wind bellow. You should have asked me beforehand, but I didn't know. But think of it as a wind bellow. The winds of the Spirit begin to blow. And we see that start at Pentecost, but it begins to create and cause something that can be done beyond what the ordinary human capability is. Far bigger, far greater than anything we could accomplish on our own when we do that in tandem with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what uh, I want you to see as we transition. These won't be up on the screen. I just want you to listen. This is what we see in the book of Acts. So listen to these. Acts 2.46 says, With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. And listen to this. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's pretty good. Acts 2.41, those who embraced this message were baptized and about 3,000, did you hear that, 3,000 were added to the believers that day. That sounds really good too. Acts 4.4, but many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000 we had 3,000, now we have 5,000, and that's just the men, not including the households represented in there. Multiple thousands, Acts five fourteen. yet more and more believers were brought to the Lord. Large numbers of both men and women. Acts 6, 1, in those days the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 6, 7, so the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem grew rapidly and grew in great numbers, and the priests became obedient to the faith. And we see leaders... Acts 9.31, this is my last one, I promise. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced a time of peace. It grew in strength and numbers, living in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. So what I want you to see is we see this growth over and over, and in some cases, massive amounts of growth. Large numbers of people are coming to know God. And this is kind of my confession to you this morning. Truth be told, I have never experienced anything like that. I don't know that anyone in here has. Have you ever seen thousands of people come? Have you been in this moment, a place, right? We hear about, you know, the Billy Graham situation every once in a while. And I've maybe seen hundreds come to know Jesus at once at like a giant conference. Has anyone seen thousands of people come to know God all at one time? And I'm asking that question not rhetorically. No. Like, I don't think it can't be done. I believe it can. I'm not even questioning, you know, in this moment, it did this happen or did it not. I'm not? I don't think it's hyperbolic necessarily, probably some element of that. But I do believe thousands of people were coming to know Jesus in this moment, right? I've seen things on TV. I've heard of in our history. We can track through recorded moments from the 17th century on where thousands of people came to know God all at one moment. But I just haven't seen it personally, and I don't know that any of us have, but I want to see it. I want to see something like that happen in my day. And I think all of us do as believers, right? We want to see these giant movements of God. We want to participate, not just see them, but become participants in things like this that we hear and read about in other situations and maybe in other cultures. But I think that there's something different here that I want us to notice that goes under the radar maybe of these larger, more explosive moments there's a couple of ways of expansion that are taking place in the scriptures. One is big and dramatic, and it has this, this giant move of thousands of people all coming to know God all at once, and it's easy to see why we'd be excited about that. It's easy to see why people are attracted to giant crowds and want to rally around these things, right? I mean, there's probably people on the edge of those movements that were like, I don't know, I just saw 2,000 people come, there must be something awesome here, I'm going to jump in, and they don't even know what they're jumping in for. And it's big, it's giant, it's exciting, but there's a second wave that we can see in the book of Acts. It's less obvious. It starts much smaller. It has much humbler beginnings than the thousands coming. But the long-term impact, I believe, is greater It has an exponential quality to it, a possibility of explosion, even though it's not as big and and powerful and and, and showy and attractive. And those things are good. I'm not trying to make fun of those things. My guess, though, is that for most of us, this second wave is going to be where we live. And the first wave, we want it, and maybe we'll see it, and I hope to, but this other wave that we see revolves around ordinary people reaching their ordinary neighbors talking to their ordinary peers, working and speaking the gospel, living in a way that compels their ordinary friends to want to come to know Jesus and multiplying to reach this message as those who are being discipled begin to disciple others. In the first century church, the work of the disciples sharing the gospel in their relational circles of influence Discipling people not just to follow Jesus, but to create more followers of Jesus had the effect of bringing regions. Not thousands. Like that scope is almost too small when you think of what happens. And I'm going to show you in the scriptures today what I'm talking about. Entire regions become saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the power of it. I want you to buy into it. I want you to be a participant of that and give you this modern kind of cultural reason why we need to embrace this over trying to gain thousands all at once with these giant, overt, big rallies that we used to see happen in our culture. Go ahead and open up to Thessalonians. We're actually, yeah, we'll go, go ahead and open to Thessalonians. Ah, no, we got to do Acts first. Acts 17. Acts 17.1, it'll be up here if you don't have it, but if you have a chance, go ahead and open your Bibles um, or, or click to it on your, on your whatever app of choice you have on your, on your Bible. Acts 17, and I'll read this out loud, it sets the stage, but then what I really want us to get to is First Thessalonians at the very beginning of that letter. Our example comes from the church at Thessalonica. It says this When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So that's three weeks in a row, three Sabbath weeks, right? He explained to them, uh, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters. Now that's one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture, right? Because now all I have is like snidely whiplash characters with... The handlebar mustaches coming after him. So some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Shout out to Jason, right? Right there. Named him in the scriptures. Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. Shouting, these men who have caused trouble, good trouble by the way. All over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Caesar. Now, quick pause, because you remember a few weeks ago I talked to you about gospel and how every cultural, or or, or, every, uh, what should I say? Um, a regime, I don't know, empire is probably a better, more common usage of it. Every empire that came and took over for this grab for power, whether it was the Greeks and then the Romans, would enter into these cities to gain their allegiances, because they couldn't to put an army military official in every city. They wanted them to abide by their own, so they would come in and say, here is the good news of the Greek culture. And the way they would get them is say, say, this is the technology. We have athletics, we have air conditioning, we have irrigation, all the technology that they had to offer. So that they would, in sense, be like, oh, well, I mean, we're not, we're not, we don't get to govern ourselves, but they bring some pretty good things to the table. Then the Greek people came in and they say, hey, here's the good news. The kingdom of Greece is here. And they said, we can do all of that, plus we have Pax Ramona. A relative level of peace. And so once again, the people who are in these villages... Once governing themselves, they're like, all right, maybe, maybe there's some good ways to come under this empire, some reasons why we might want to do it, although they were not technically free. And so here, when it says this, Jason, welcome them into the house. They are all defying Caesar's what? Decrees. I don't know if it's up there anymore, so I kind of I pulled a fast one on you. There is another king, one called Jesus. And so anytime the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it is over and against the exict existing political regime do you see that happening and here they get that here they're wanting to pull jason out of his house and all the people with him and say no 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 no. you're not going to come against caesar this day there is no good news but caesar and jesus is coming in competition to that they say in verse 8 when they heard this the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil then they made jason and the others post bond and let them go As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, once again, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character, the opposite of snidely whiplashes, than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So this is the beginning of the Thessalonican, the Thessalonian church, I should say. This is how it started, and and what I want you to see is, by and large, like we see some good things, but over and against some of the other things we saw, thousands of people coming against them, or coming into the kingdom. This one doesn't quite compare. Things aren't going as well as they would say it had gone in these other areas, at least not in comparison to the moments of expansion, dramatic, explosive expansion. There are not thousands coming to know God in one fell swoop, instead... These people come to know God under the duress of opposition and at the end they have to sneak Paul and his friends out in the middle of the night. And then even by Luke, who's the writer of Acts, his own critique, he says to them that the people that they go to next, the Berean church, are of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. They receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. But listen. You can't sleep on the Thessalonican church, the Thessalonian church. I don't want to keep saying Thessalonica. Because even though we don't see thousands, there's a faithful remnant, this tiny bit of people, this group of very faithful in the midst of dangerous persecution who say, no, 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 we are going to stand here in this, and we are going to begin spreading the gospel. It says, some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This remnant is important because it gives us this little glimpse as to the power of what happens when we just get ourselves into a mindset of saying, I'm going to pass on the DNA of the gospel. I'm gonna pass on the discipleship of Jesus into a new generation. And this is where I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. Go ahead and go to 1 Thessalonians 1. This is the letter that Paul sends back to them on the other side. And we get to check in and see how this little church, this remnant, this faithful few turn out. 1 Thessalonians 1 said, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, The Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you continually mentioning you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the first lines, you get a sense that Paul has a level of excitement for this church, right? He's excited for what they've been able to accomplish. And if you caught it there, did you see that all of the elements of wildfire are there? Prompted by love. They had a spark, they had a heat for the gospel, and it begins to turn up. They labored in faith, even amidst persecution. They are living in obedience, giving up their lives, rearranging the way they've lived it so that they can model after what they have been given. The lives laid down in obedience is the fuel of this wildfire. You might want to ask the question here, well, what about the oxygen? Where's the Holy Spirit? Verse 4 says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and conviction. We have oxygen now. We have the winds of the Spirit fanning this into even deeper heat, even deeper flames. So Where's the multiplication? Where's the wild in this? told you a couple weeks ago we've talked about the fire but what about the wild aspect of this and that's kind of what this whole sermon is really trying to point us towards when we keep reading it says you know how we lived among you for your sake you became what what's the word oh we don't have the verses oh interesting all right i'm gonna have to read it to you no fill in the blanks for y'all not today You became imitators. Can you say that word with me, imitators? Imitators. You said it without me. Let's do it again. Imitators. Ah, one, two, three. (laughs) I left you on your own again. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became, and this word is model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere, everywhere. It goes on to tell us this therefore we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us and he ends with this little mini gospel presentation they tell you how turned how they turned from god to god from idols to serve the living and true god listen to this and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath all right so if we back up a little bit i want to make a little bit of sense out of what's going on here who proclaims the gospel first a little bit of a trick question. Who proclaims the gospel first? Shout it out. I got gotcha. you. Who proclaims the gospel first? It should be the easiest answer. It's either the Bible or what? Jesus. Jesus. There we go. <laughs> Jesus is the first to proclaim the gospel. He's the first to say, go and make disciples of all nations. He was the living embodiment and the discipler from which all of us originate. And then he has his followers. So who's the second group? to begin the process of, of taking the elements of the gospel and passing it on, it's the disciples. Here we have the example of Paul and his friends who bring the gospel into their midst and taught it, lived it, discipled it, others who imitated what they did. So we have one generation as Jesus, the second generation being the disciples. Then we have this third generation, the Thessalonians, who welcomed the message, embraced the teachings, and began to model their lives after the disciples who were living amongst them for their sake, is what the Scripture said. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. They modeled the behavior in front of other people so well that it began to continue to move and transfer into even further uh, people groups, into groups that were even further out. They poured out of the congregation and into the streets of the world around them. They poured out of the streets and into the towns who were nearby until they had discipled effectively an entire region of people. I mean, you could go real dramatic on this and say there's an even fourth layer of multiplication that takes place. Actually, five, if we really want to take it. The fourth one is, so you became a model to those, Macedonia and Achaia. So we have an obvious fourth layer of multiplication. Four generations. Once again, it doesn't stop. The Lord's message rang out not only from Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith to God has become known to everyone. So check this out: What started with Jesus, then passed on to the disciples, then went to Thessalonica, then into the regions around it, went to Achaia, another nearby town, Macedonia, another nearby town, and now it just—he's like, you know what? It's gone so far, it's just like everyone knows about you all. It is just everywhere right now. And so again, I could add that next layer and just say everywhere, right? That's that's the, the end result of this. But this is what I want you to see. There's a point at the end, though you have to admit that, that, that if we were to just kind of bulk say everyone knows the gospel, that's kind of a, a cheap scapegoat, right? Like maybe, maybe news is just filtering out. You've made a lot of noise to some extent, but this is what happens to him. It's not just word of them. It's not just hype about them. He says this, Paul goes into another generation. He goes into a town and they look at him and say, oh, thanks, Paul. But the third generation of people that you discipled came to us before you had a chance to get to us, and we already know all this. So Paul started a fire over here that reached a place he wanted to go, and they already knew elements of the gospel because of his disciples, even without him reaching that place. This is the power of this exponential discipleship. This is what makes the fire that we're talking about over the last few weeks wild. This is a fire that's just gone out of control on a couple of accounts. From one angle, just when you think about it, it's, it's out in the wild, as in not within the four walls of some building. There are elements of discipleship that you can't just create a transfer of knowledge. It doesn't work that way. You have to be hands-on. You have to be modeling in front of people. And so there's an aspect of this that has to be out there in the wild on the streets that takes place. But there's also this other part of it, this expansion that's uncontrollable. Paul's not in control at that point. Do you see that? What he started back here, the fire he started back here, reached a place he wanted to get to but hadn't yet. He's not even in control. The Holy Spirit is now moving this thing, creating a wildfire outside of the disciples' capability. So it's not just out of his control. It accomplishes more than he could have done on his own. All of this happens because of what? Not thousands. That's not the moment that we saw. That's not what we read. All of this happens because a faithful few decided to grow hot decided to fuel that fire with their lives, decided to allow the winds of the Spirit to blow on it, and then they reproduced themselves by becoming disciples who made disciples over and over and over again. Now, I know this analogy is maybe a little bit worn out, but it's worthwhile, I think. And if you were a part of of our House Church Reinforced training, then you've heard this before, but you have this analogy of rabbits and, and elephants, right? If you put two elephants on an island... It will take at least 22 months for one baby elephant to emerge from that moment, all right? 22 months is how long it takes for a baby to come out of that situation. But if you put two rabbits on that same island for the same amount of time, it will eventually result in thousands and thousands of rabbits. They have essentially taken over the entire island. Why? Well, because they're smaller. They're more fertile. They will increase exponentially. They have more babies than one at a time, and it happens in a couple weeks' time. And so in just a few weeks, the same amount of time, we have three elephants or thousands and thousands of agile, reproducible animals on this island. And so what I want you to see is what we're seeing, that those giant thousand-person movements are fine, but, but it's hard to recreate those things. If you want to take it into a first century, and, and I'll read from the book, The Rabbit Versus the Elephant, it says, like the elephant, large institutional churches are impressive in size. They move slowly, but they use up lots of resources, and they're not easily reproduced. House churches, right, on the other hand, are like rabbits, very agile, reproducible, capable of taking over a geographic space while bringing the church into every single crevice of society. And I think this is where our church gets to live and excel in, embrace a type of of strategic understanding that we see very represented in the Scriptures of transferable faith that goes from one person to the next, into the next. It starts much slower. It's much less impressive than elephants, right? Elephants are pretty darn impressive, amen? It was kind of a joke, I don't know wasn't good. But I want you to see the scope after just a few generations of the rabbits has a much stronger capability. One of the things that's important for you to see at the beginning of every church is just a seed, a tiny seed. Every generation of disciples has to have the ability to pass on a core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's like DNA inside of us, right? Just like rabbits, who have the capability of reproducing more rabbits. We have to have the ability to reproduce ourselves in the form of discipleship. And so what I want to, pa- what I, what I want to ask then is the question, what is this DNA? What is the biological m- mapping of the, the body of Christ, right? Do I have any scientists in the room? Well, I won't make you out yourself. We used to have a couple here. Scientists would correct me later. So don't correct my, uh, my DNA ver- metaphors in my biological mapping ideas. And I'm about to talk about uh, our DNA. No, I won't. We'll leave the RNA out of this. We think the essence of the church, and you've heard this a hundred times, the basic elements of discipleship can be boiled down into three things. This is why you hear us talk about them over and over and over. It's devotion, it's community, and it's mission. We did an entire series over the summer kind of trying to decolonize our own version of that by asking others to come in and help us see what we can't see. But ultimately, we think by passing on these three elements, right? Community, devotion, and mission. It's simple, but it's powerful. It's reproducible. These three things, working together, have the ability to start a church. In fact, some proponents of the house church movement will say, if you put a group of small children in any unreached people group, that they can, get in, in, they can create a church within one generation if they just create a devotion to God a relational community within them, and they begin to advance the gospel through mission. And they use children as their example because they are the small of this world, right? We think of them as the ones who aren't as capable as maybe a grown adult going there. If everyone in this room embraced the idea of these three aspects being the core of what it means to be a disciple and being intent, confidently committed to saying, I'm going to transfer that on to someone else who doesn't know Jesus, We will see a generational multiplication movement of God's church here in our time, in our neighborhoods. Our three pillars function as a double helix running through every appendage of our church community. And so the idea is that those three things would be present in all that we do, able to reproduce. And so what you do is when you come here, you see a version of that, but it's incomplete, right? Our Sunday services are our gathering of our house churches, and we devote ourselves to God, we read the scriptures, we sing worship songs, right? We have a little bit of community, we get to touch base, but it's not real in-depth community, right? And there's really mostly, you get to hear about some of the mission that we're on, and we pray that God would use us for the sake of mission, but it's in the house church context where our, 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 our larger gathering breaks down, and we can become more intimate in terms of our knowledge and discipleship with each other. We can confess to each other. We can get to know each other on a deeper level, a level that is different than what happens here. But we still study the Scriptures, and we go on mission together in our house churches. And I want to I I suggest to you, I've done this on a couple of occasions, and I have a little bit more tangible today, that our house churches then should break down into even smaller groups of two and three that disciple and mentor each other, an interdiscipling, mentoring relationship. And I'll come back and explain that in just a few seconds. And so what I want you to see is that there is a way in which we want this running, these three things running throughout everything that we do, from the large group gathering to the house church to even these smaller group gatherings. And if we do that, it creates a reproducibility that is unlike anything else that's possible. We see what Thessalonica was able to accomplish in creating disciple-making movements that move continually outside of control and out into the wild. The last thing that I want to do here, um, I'm going to bust out the whiteboard real quick, and I'll be quick on this one. Again, if you were in our house church reinforced, you were able to see this. But I've appealed to you mostly based on what we can accomplish. But I also think that we lose a couple of things if we're not careful by not moving in this direction. Because we're in a cultural moment that is distinct than maybe what many of you have grown up in. And it's simply this. Um, As if we decide not to make disciples, if we decide not to move in a direction that transfers the gospel into other places we could always just relax knowing that there was a level of Christendom in America that caused people to want to at least check out church, right? That's kind of the default that we have assumed would be helpful, right? And so there's a few ways that that happens. One is, well, the church has good morals. Maybe I don't believe in all that supernatural stuff. Maybe I don't know that Jesus rose from the grave, but at least they'll teach my, my, my kids good morals. And so they would take their kids to the church for that reason. But that's not necessarily what the culture around us believes anymore. They don't necessarily see the church. An average person driving by look over here and say, hey, they've got good morals. We're probably at odds with what they might decide is good or not good moral, in terms of a moral understanding. You might say, well, I grew up with the church, and maybe I walked away in college and kind of did my own thing, but eventually I'll settle down, maybe get married, have some kids, and I want them to at least have that, that kid experience that I had because Sunday school was a lot of fun, flannel graphs and all, right? But the problem with that is more and more people didn't grow up in the church. I am the first fruits of that. I would never have gotten out of my college years and thought, I need to go back to church because I had never been to church in the first place. All right? And so what I want you to see, and I put most of the little graphic here. I know it's not super easy to see. This says cultural influence. We used to live in a place, think little house on the prairie, right? And there's no room for a steeple here, but you'll see a little steeple at the top of it. This is a church building. Everything happened there. People went to school there. All the town hall meetings were at this place. It was the center of the community at that point in time. But now we're walking through a situation where the influence of that over time is going down Now, there's a few little points of commentary we can make about specifically white evangelicalism and, and some of the things that need to be deconstructed out of that, but that's not what we're doing today. But, but, but don't let that create a stumbling block for you. We get that this wasn't all it was cracked up to be. What I want you to see is that the cultural influence of the church over time is decreasing, and I'm going to do it. If you've been through this before, don't, don't, don't give away the ending. If you were to say how what percentage of America is Christian, identifies as Christian, what would you say? Throw out a number. All right, I got a 50, and I heard a 40 out there. What else? Did I get a 25 somewhere? No? We got 30. All right, we're going down. Anyone think it's higher than 50? We got an 80. Boom. Boom. Identify. Yeah, you're qualifying it. Anyone else want to throw something out there? All right. So check this out. A guy by the name of John S. Dickerson, who happened to move to Indianapolis a few years ago, about the time we did. He's at Cross Point, large church in the West Valley, West. Yeah, West Side. Um, he wrote a book a few years ago called "The uh, the, the Great Evangelical Recession," wherein he qualified. How, how uh, in, in four different, the Pew Research, the Barna Research, and a couple of others, he qualified, if you said in there, now these are not research elements trying to talk about Christianity, they just happen to have Christian questions in them. So in these um, research uh, surveys, you say you're a Christian somewhere, and then anywhere else, anywhere, you mention some qualifying possibility to back that up, like, I go to church regularly. Yep, I do or I read my Bible, that'll count, or I am devoted to Jesus, I tithe regularly. All right, any one other option, and this includes Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholic, Protestant. So so there's no no real dividing. Anyone who would say they're a Christian, right? You guys ready for this? Seven to eight percent. I am guaranteeing you that this is lower on the other side of COVID. Or maybe this is the 7 to 8% that stuck around. I don't know. But a lot of people who just saw this as a cultural thing for them, it wasn't that important, took the opportunity for COVID to say, I, just, I guess I don't need to go back to that. 7 to 8% across four. Four different research groups. Unbiased. Now you can read the book for all the details if you're more interested in that, but I think this is probably pretty accurate. And the bar was low if you didn't catch that. The bar was pretty low, right? And so here is my appeal to you based off of what we're losing, all right? I've tried to get you excited about this because of what we can gain, multiplying relationships. But this is what I think is true. The answer to this for us is house churches. This doesn't work. The idea that we would just wait for people to maybe come through our doors because they're interested in what we might be doing, is gone. It's gone. And so as a part of an evangelism strategy, not just a place for people to belong, not just for community, all three, DNA, devotion, community, and mission, as this leaves, I think it is time for us to increase. Now, of course, this still works for some of us, and we still like these larger group gatherings, right? So this little area is gonna be a little messy as we make that transition. And who knows if this will ever be created in a way that's, that it's, that's the only way, you know, in, in case we were not allowed to have large group gatherings. I don't know that we're that close to that at this point. But what I want you to see is there is a strategic way that goes all the way back to the first century church that God says, hey, so what if this doesn't work? Don't get so caught up on the model just because you loved it and grew up with it. There is another way to reach people. And this is the beautiful thing that I want you to see. As Christendom lowers, house churches can become more important. We don't need to reach people by hoping they walk through these doors when the front door of the church is right next door to them in the form of you and your household who lives in the neighborhood. It's right there. The gospel, if the seeds exist, are right there. But it only happens if we take discipleship seriously. It's our job here as the leaders to be equippers, right? Ephesians 4 says we are equippers of the saints, right? And so what I wanna do is give you a couple of things of equipping. I'll mention them briefly. If you have any other questions, you can come talk to me and then we'll end here in prayer. These are some actionable steps. Next week, we launch new house churches. Sign up. Get involved in a house church if you haven't been involved in one yet. This is our appeal. Every quarter we launch new house churches. Our next launch will happen next week. Be here right after the service, and you'll have an orientation that will launch you on a 10-week journey with another group of people. We also, for the first time, have had more people than we ever have. And I say this with a level of delight in that I feel like I'm always trying to convince people of this, but it doesn't ever quite happen. I don't know what to do when people actually say yes to it, right? We've had multiple people in house churches say, I think I need to plant a new house church near to where I live. And so we have people wanting to plant a house church in downtown, in the downtown area. If you're interested in that, please talk to me after this. We have people who want to plant a church in their neighborhood because their house church is awesome, but they have to leave it every week to be a part of it. And so what I want you to see is we have this way of, of launching. Now we have this excitement of people saying, I don't just want to be in a house church. We need to create house churches closer and with more missional capability than the ones had before right in my own area. And so what I want to do is to challenge you to get into a house church. The second thing I want to do is to make a disciple. If you've never made a disciple, this is your call to do it. Find somebody who is open to hearing from you or to to have some sense of influence in your life because you have a spiritual legacy, generations out being cut off at the root because you never started it to begin with. And I've said this before. I don't mean to be overly um, pointed in this, but it was helpful for me to hear. If you're a Christian and you have never made a disciple, then the Great Commission was never realized in you. It stopped with you. Do you understand what that means? It means it reached you and then stopped. You haven't faithfully passed on what you were given. There's multiple ways to do it. I get it, with with kids at home, you can disciple your children, but I think that there's a familial way in which discipling people, peers, has a way uh, of being something that's different and that we should not forsake that altogether. So there's lots of ways to do it we've had life transformation groups we've mentioned to you kairos learning circles discovery bible study methods dna groups from the soma communities this is what we've tried to do if you want one of these and these are all available online this is like the 1.0 version i think that i need to make this font a little bit bigger even for my own uh eye capabilities we're calling this pillar groups now this is only new in that we've called it one thing i've tried to synthesize all of these together into one thing and it is my hope that even outside of a church, you could find two or three people to begin grouping up with. And all it does is give you suggestions on th- ways to, inv- to bring those three things into your world, devotion, community, mission, into a group of two or three in your midst. They can be done at a lunch, at your workplaces. They can be done at coffee shops, at pubs, at your house, anywhere that you want to do these things. But the idea is to read Scripture together, talk it over, have some accountability in your community, and to be able to challenge each other and to be on mission, even if that means just praying for people you know to come to know Jesus through it. Those are the seeds. If you want one of those, there's a physical one on the connecting place on the way out. We want to see a wildfire in northeast Indianapolis. I'm telling you, everything we need to accomplish that is right here. A faithful few is right here listening to me. Maybe people online, I don't know how many people are watching us online right now, but the faithful few is amongst us. The Holy Spirit is in you. We are the ones who have the ability to burn hot with God's love, to give ourselves boldly over to loving people and advancing the gospel and to give our lives as the fuel for that fire And to listen to the Holy Spirit and do what he says, it's time to become a disciple-making movement at Common Ground Northeast. These gatherings are just the tip of the iceberg. I want to see us create a network of house churches launching out new people, left and right, uncontrollably, and out in the wild. Would you let me pray for you? We would see that come into fruition. Yes, Lord. Father, I just thank you for, as, as we've closed up this morning, brought a few loose ends uh, to their conclusion. Lord, that you would inspire us. Give us courage. Light us on fire. Father, I just pray that if this is tapping the shoulder of anyone in this room, that we would have a chance to know it. to help equip people for it. And that this wouldn't just be a sermon series that has come and gone, Lord. As we enter into the fall season, we rearrange our schedules to maximize our ability to tell people about the love of you, Jesus. That we use our households as conduits to put you on display. That we represent you in the seeds of the gospel are just liberally thrown, sown out into all soils, God. You control who receives and who doesn't. That's not on us. But let it grow, Father, not just into fruit, but into fruit-bearing fruit and disciples who make disciples. We pray for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.